Please open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 11, Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. We're coming to the end of this chapter with a tremendous closing paragraph. We have been following Jesus so far as He has preached to the multitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and then uh, now He has warned His followers of opposition, and He Himself is beginning to experience that even now. I'm going to read the text for us, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30, again, this is the Word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's bow our heads again together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we know that all all sermons fall short of the passage that is being preached upon, but, but certainly this sermon will fall far short of this text. Uh, it is a magnificent uh, passage that both counts the exalted status of Jesus as the only Son of God who is equal with the Father, and at the same time, in the very same text, in the very next sentence, the Lord Jesus speaks of Himself as being gentle and lowly of heart, and giving us a universal invitation to find rest in Him. It is hard to find a text that goes beyond the glory of the one presented here. So I pray, God, that by Your Spirit, You would open our eyes so that we would see this text and the Lord Jesus in all His glory, and that we would be changed by Your Spirit, by Your Word, and that You would get the glory and that we would get the joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my message today is called Equal with the Father and Gentle and Lowly. And I have three points. I'll just mention the points quickly. I believe they're on the screen as well. Number one, Jesus thanks the Father for concealing and revealing, verses 25 and 26. Point number two, Jesus claims to be equal with and the only revealer of the Father, equal with and the only revealer of the Father, verse 27. And point number three, Jesus invites us to find rest in Himself, verses 28 to 30. Jesus invites us to find rest in Himself. So let me just remind us of the context immediately in this chapter. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but this is where the tide is turning against Jesus. Do you remember in this gospel? The first person to display doubt, shockingly, was who? John the Baptist of all people. John the Baptist was beginning to doubt Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Now, Jesus reassures John. I have no doubt that John died as a martyr, faithfully trusting Christ in those last weeks in prison. But if John was beginning to doubt, what would that mean for the wider crowds? It means the wider crowds are largely rejecting Jesus entirely. 
And we have the rejection of those he's speaking to, verses 16 16 to 19. And then, as Greg preached last Sunday, all these cities that are rejecting him, Chorazin and Bethsaida and and on and on, Capernaum, the the, the hometown of Jesus' ministry. And so here's the question. Jesus, as a true human being, a man who never sinned but was truly human while being truly divine, he experienced, no doubt, I could imagine a temptation coming towards him to say, you should be discouraged right now. Things are not going the way that you might want. And perhaps in his human nature, a, a temptation could have come to say, everything seems to be going the wrong way. But Jesus is not discouraged. Instead, he strengthens himself and is encouraged. How? One pastor puts it like this, quote, in this moment when the Lord Jesus could have been profoundly discouraged, here is the first great effort to spread the gospel to the surrounding countryside, and many, many, many people had rejected that message, had rejected his miracles. He could have been very downcast. I want you to see that in that context, the Lord Jesus lifts up a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the context that's a remarkable thing to do. He lifts up a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Your translations probably, some of them say different things. The, the word is neither the normal word for thanks or praise in Greek. It's a little bit of a hard word to translate. It can mean uh, to confess, but it's the idea of confessing in a positive way. So it means to praise or to thank God. Translations on either way are right in, that, in the, the way. It's a, it's a praise of thanksgiving that Jesus gives to his father in a moment of great trial. So he lifts up a prayer of thanksgiving to his heavenly father. And in that prayer, he contemplates a few things. And we should learn from Jesus to be encouraged in our own struggles by how Jesus was encouraged. Number one, in that prayer, he contemplates God's sovereignty. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then later he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Jesus, when He sees what looks like outward failure to His ministry, I'm using air quotes there, when He looks like outward failure to His ministry, He strengthens Himself as a human being, He strengthens Himself in the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And this is true for all of us. When we are discouraged, when things are not going the way that we wish, when things are difficult and challenging and we are tempted toward discouragement, despair, depression, loneliness, anxiety, unholy fear, what are we to do? We are to do what Jesus does here. We are to cast up a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. How can you praise God when everything seems to be falling apart? Jesus lifts up the sovereignty of God. He trusts God, whether the gospel is being concealed or revealed. The Lord Jesus trusts in God's goodness and sovereignty. Second thing, Jesus contemplates God's wisdom, for such was your gracious will. It's the wisdom of God that is at work, and the Lord praises, the Lord Jesus praises His Father for His wisdom, and He contemplates the fact that God has caused some to respond positively to the gospel. So let's think about this for a moment a little longer. If you are tempted towards sinful anger because of circumstances that you do not enjoy, ingratitude, complaining, in those moments, how do we obey the command to give thanks in all circumstances? Right, that's, that's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. How many times have we violated this verse in our lives? 
Give thanks in all circumstances. And then the next part, you just love it, don't you? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We must be like Jesus, which is this. We must trust that whatever is happening, God has His good purpose, and we must turn these difficulties back to the Lord in prayer and thanks, and we must name, God, name to God the things that we are thankful for. That may sound like a trite exercise to list the things you're thankful for, but Jesus is doing that very thing in this prayer, and it is a right thing to do. Again, this is years ago. We were at school before the school year started, and our head of school, Jared Clark, he asked us to take out a piece of paper, and he said he, he limit, we could do nothing else for the next however many minutes. It was like five minutes or something. He said, I want you just to write down on a sheet of paper everything you can think of in your life that you are thankful for. And I'm thinking, okay, we've, you know, we've all done stuff like this. Okay, what, what difference is this going to make? We sit down and we start doing it. And if you've done this recently, it's an amazing thing because you just start listing things and you just start thinking. Most importantly, spiritual blessings. Also, you can think of physical blessings, all kinds of things. Just start listing them. If you're in a bad mood or having a hard time, just sit down, get out a blank sheet of paper, and just write for five minutes, listing like bullet points, things that you are grateful for. And you will be amazed at what you will see on that page and the way it could change your own perspective in that moment. So Jesus thanks the Father for concealing and revealing. Let's look at this again, verse 25. At that time, so in the context of rejection, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, or I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, before we miss this and what's going on in this text, I just want to draw your attention to a couple things here again. Jesus teaches between verse 20 and 30. That's a brief text, those two paragraphs, verse 20 to 30 of this chapter. You know what Jesus teaches? Number one, he teaches human accountability for how we respond to the gospel. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you. Uh, he mentions all the cities, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. If you're, you think you're going to be lifted up to heaven, you'll be taken down to Hades. Uh, the, the judgment on Sodom will not be as severe as the judgment on you. Why? Because Sodom, as wicked as that city was didn't have the clarity of the gospel preached to it like you're receiving right now. And if you reject the gospel in clarity, you are accountable and responsible, and you will be judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you hear the clear gospel and reject it outright, Jesus teaches the accountability of man. That was the sermon last Sunday from Greg. Number two, Jesus teaches divine sovereignty. The Lord reveals it to whom He wills. Jesus reveals the, 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 the Father to those whom He chooses. You see clearly divine sovereignty on display. And guess what else you see in the same text? The universal offer of the gospel. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the Bible teaches all of those things side by side. We are accountable for how we respond to Jesus. If I reject the gospel, it is my fault. It is my sin if I reject Jesus. Number two, if I receive Jesus, it ultimately is owing to God's sovereign intervention in my life. The Lord revealed what I could not have revealed to myself. The Lord saved me and transformed my will, so God gets the credit if I receive the gospel. And finally, that in no way diminishes the universal offer of the gospel, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. All those three truths are taught throughout Scripture, and in this text, we see them side by side. We are accountable. God is sovereign. And the gospel is to be offered to all. Now, what do we see here about the concealing and the revealing? He, re he conceals from the wise and understanding and reveals to little children. Pastor H.B. Charles says it like this. 
Jesus thanks God for the mystery of salvation, where those who you think will get it don't, and where those who are least likely to get it do. The wise and understanding here is not referring merely to someone who has a high IQ or someone who got a high SAT score or who did really well in school with their grades. That's not what he's referring to here, although it could include some of those people, certainly. What he's referring to here is those who think that they are wise and understanding in their own eyes. It's those who think that they've got things figured out on their own, and therefore, because I think I've got things figured out, I am wise and understanding in my own view, my own view of myself, therefore, I am not going to be humble and receptive to the message God has to teach. When His Word comes, it seems foolish to me in my worldly wisdom, and therefore, I am all the more likely to stiff-arm it and to hold it at arm's length. But look at this. He revealed it to the little children. Now, little children here is not referring to merely young people. It's referring to childlikeness. If you have your Bible, flip to Matthew 18, just a few chapters to your right. Matthew chapter 18. And I think this is the same idea that Jesus teaches here. It's, it's childlikeness, not merely childishness or being a child. So look at Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So what does Jesus do? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, if you want to understand the truth and to know the truth and to follow the truth and be saved by the truth, what must be true of you? You and I must not be wise in our own eyes. We must be childlike. What does that mean here? Think about little children tend to be not sinless and perfect. Jesus knows that's not true. What What does he know? Young children are trusting, right? They are dependent. They have no merit of their own. They believe what they are told. They they are receptive to the truth from their parents. They they, they receive, they believe, they're dependent. That is childlikeness. And Jesus is saying, if we are humble, dependent, and trusting of God's word, that is the entryway into the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones who understand God's truth truly, whom God is at work in, who have the desire to trust and follow Christ because they are humble and they are dependent and they are trusting. Matthew, flip to Matthew 16, just a few chapters over again. Matthew 16, look down at verse 15. Everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is. In fact, let me start in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. People are trying to understand the identity of Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, listen to these words, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." To truly come to know Jesus is not something that your flesh and blood can make happen. 
You cannot make it happen. You cannot just, just choose in a certain way just to make that happen. No, what do we need? We need a dependence on the Lord and the Lord revealing the truth to us. Flesh and blood cannot reveal the truth, only the Father who is in heaven. And that is how Peter came to know that Jesus is the Messiah. So the application could not be more obvious. I'll quote a couple verses. You don't have to turn to these. Listen to these. Isaiah 57, 15. You can jot it down if you want to and look it up later, or you can look it up now. Listen to these words. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is. Now, many of you know how the verse ends. Let's act like you don't know how the verse ends. Imagine you're hearing it for the first time. God is speaking in the most exalted possible terms about himself. Listen again. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and with him who is. You think, wow, it must be someone who's greatly accomplished, someone who has incredible abilities, right? That's the only person who would be worthy to climb the ladder and get up to God. But that's not what God says. God says, I am high and lifted up. Here's who I dwell with with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Humility is worth more than all the treasure in this world. All the money in this world, all the prestige in this world, all the popularity and fame in this world, all the riches of this world, none of it holds a candle to genuine humility and contrition before the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. So here we are, back to heaven. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So I made heaven and earth, but this is the one to whom I will look. This means look with favor. He who is humble, and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Listen to these verses. I just want to kind of overwhelm you with these verses. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen? Who's God chosen? the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. I want you to think about the value and the glory of humility. Pride is the number one sin that keeps anyone and everyone out of heaven. Humility is the number one thing that comes with empty hands in need and desperation and clings to the work of Christ. It comes with no merit. It comes with no presumption. It comes with no incredible sophistication. It comes empty, poor, bankrupt, naked, looking for the righteous clothing of Christ. And it reaches out empty hands and says, please, Lord, save me. It's the man in the temple who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer to you. I just need your grace. I need your mercy. I cannot earn it. I cannot do anything to impress you, Lord. Please rescue me by grace. It is that person who is exalted by God. 
And it's the proud who is abased and brought low. The, I think it was John Stott who said, the, the greatest thing in the world is humility and your greatest enemy is your pride. My pride is my greatest enemy because it's the number one thing that keeps me from God and keeps me from seeing my need for the Lord. So let us be like children, little children in that sense. Point number two, verse 27, Jesus claims to be equal with and the only revealer of the Father. Verse 27. This verse, if you haven't paid attention to this verse, it is astonishing what is packed into this statement here from the Lord. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, in case this verse, which I think I was guilty of this, this verse could just kind of slip over my head sometimes without really focusing on it. Jesus is speaking extraordinarily highly of Himself. He says here, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Does that sound like the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus saying all things, as in divine status. This is what He's claiming for Himself. I have the same status as the Father. All things have been handed over to me. Just, just listen to John who echoes these verses in John's gospel. L- listen to this. Jesus says this. The Father loves this. This is John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Is Jesus making Himself equal with the Father? John 5, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus does what only God the Father does. He's equal to the Father. John, 5, John 17, 1 and 2, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given Him. And John 14, 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me except can come to the Father except through me. Now we see here, Jesus says, all things have been given to me by the Father. I'm equal to the Father. Then keep listening here to what he says. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Okay, that's more obvious, but listen to the next part. And no one knows the Father except the Son. You know what that means? This is that intimate, complete knowledge that love relationship knowledge between the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying no one in the universe has comprehensive and full knowledge in this love relationship of the Father other than me. I am the only being in the universe who truly knows the Father. You know what he's claiming for himself? He has to be God in order to truly know God fully and completely. Not even the angels in heaven totally with omniscience, know the Father in all that He is. No one other than God knows God completely. And Jesus says, I am the only being in the world who knows the Father in this sense, completely, intimately, fully. John chapter 1, Jesus, we'll hear more about this perhaps in a few weeks, Jesus dwells with the Father in that intimate way. So Jesus is claiming to be equal with God and to truly know God alone in all the world. But then He says, I can bring other people into this knowledge of God when I so choose. When I, when I choose to reveal Him, I can bring people to know the Father, but do you see what He says? Look, look here, into verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is claiming that the only way to know the Father is through Him. This is the John 14, 6 of Matthew. The only way to know the Father, the only way to have the Father revealed to you is through the Son. 
Because the Son is the only one with the authority and the divinity to truly reveal the Father to you. This is, again, John 14, 6. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus is saying right here. He is claiming equality with God, and he's claiming to be the only access point between heaven and earth. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you reject God the Father. Now, let me just speak unusually just bluntly here. There's no, no way to say it other than to speak the truth on this. If someone says... I am, I, I am an Orthodox Jew, and I believe in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, but I reject Jesus as Messiah and as Son of God. But we worship the same God, don't we? I would say, no. Because if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. And that's what Jesus himself said. First John speaks the same way. If we reject the Son, we reject the Father also. Uh, Islam also, again, another major monotheistic religion claiming to be based in the God of Abraham, yet they reject Jesus as the divine Son of God, and therefore, if you lose the Son, you lose the Father also. To know God, the only avenue is to know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to reject Jesus is to reject the revelation of God the Father. As R.C. Sproul one time beautifully said, it was a YouTube clip that kind of went viral for a while years ago. R.C. Sproul says, sometimes people say, why would God leave only one way to know him? Just his son. Why not many paths and many ways? And R.C. Sproul does this wonderful thing where for several minutes he talks about the grace of God to Adam and Eve and how we all deserve death and God has given us grace. And he goes on and on. And he finally says, what's shocking is not that there's only one way, but that there is a way to know God by grace. That's the shock of the gospel. It's not that why are there so few ways. It's why would God allow sinful people like me to actually know him? God disclosed himself through his son. He disclosed himself. He made himself known through his word. And he's given that revelation to us in grace and generosity. And he's inviting us to come to know him. Why would God do that? A holy God invite a sinful people to know him through the death of his son. Why would a God be so gracious? Not why would God be so narrow? The question is, why is God so gracious? And here's the deal. Jesus is not a God who's only available to one kind of people. It's not like Jesus is only available for, for this ethnicity, right? For the people who speak this one language, they can know Jesus, but no one else. No, Jesus is the one Savior, but He's available to all humanity. And that takes us to our third point, point number three. Jesus invites us to find rest in Himself. I don't want to rush through these verses I almost did a whole nother sermon just on these verses, but we're going we're gonna to just spend a moment here. I hope you just savor this. I don't know how to improve on a text like this. All I can do is mess this up, okay? So if, if, just, if I start messing this up, just keep reading the passage, because that's what you need to hear is the passage right here. I don't know how to do justice to these next three verses. These are absolutely astonishing. Verse 28, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus says this to all of us, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It really is hard to even comment on these verses. They are astonishing. Here's what Jesus is saying. And there, there are no limits on this invitation. It is absolutely wide open. Labor and heavy laden can apply to an infinite number of things. 
So perhaps most immediately he might be thinking of the Pharisees who Jesus says later in Matthew, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So perhaps most immediately you might be thinking of the legalistic addition to all the laws of the Old Testament that, that the Pharisees had added at that time that were overbearing burdens on people and crushed them to the ground, but they were not even willing to lift a finger to help them, perhaps. But Jesus is not limited. This is a wide open application for all the hardships of life. Weary, heavy laden, laboring and burdened. Can you relate to that? You know what it's like to be stressed beyond language, to be ready to give up, to be ready to tap out, to have no energy left, to have no strength left in your system, to say, God, I don't know what to do right now. I cannot continue. I can't take another step. The Lord says, you don't have to take another step. You just need to fall into my grace. You just need to come to me. I didn't say work my way to me. I said collapse into my grace. All it takes is to say, Lord, I am burdened. I am heavy laden. I cannot do this any longer. And the Lord says, you don't have to do this any longer. I will help you. I will provide grace to you. I am here to give you all that you need. It's like a starving man coming out of the wilderness, a thirst about to die, and someone providing a banquet and a feast and saying, eat, take and eat, take and drink. This is yours. I purchased it with my blood on the cross. It is yours for free. Come, those who have no money, buy. Buy without money all that you need. Take from me. Let me quote Spurgeon here. You know, before I quote that, uh, Dane Ortland, I'm going to quote this in a minute. Uh, many of you have read this book, Gentle and Lowly. We got a bunch of free copies. There's more copies in the back. If you've never read it before, I highly recommend this book. It's a wonderful devotional meditation on Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. It's a tremendous devotional book, Gentle and Lowly. I'll quote it in a moment. But Dane Ortland and others have talked about this. This idea here of, you know, Jesus could say, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus tells you what's in his heart. He tells you, this is what my heart is like. It's the only time. He, he opens up and he says, this is what my heart is like. And, and he just said, I, no one knows the Father except me. All authority, everything's been given to me. I give, you know, I, I'm sovereign like the Father. I'm equal to the Father. The very next verse you're expecting to say, therefore, I am sovereign and dignified in heart. I am austere and commanding in heart. I am God and you better bow down in heart. That, that, that's the attitude you're expecting out of the very next verse. He goes from verse 27. I'm equal to the Father. I'm the only way to know God. I know God in a way no one else does. I'm the second person of the Trinity, you could say it in our language today. The very next verse. Let me open up my heart to you. Who would have ever dreamed the next words would be, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Come to me and I will give you rest. What kind of God is this that we are serving who goes from all things have been given to me by the Father, next line, I'll give you rest. My heart is lowly and gentle. That is not the God that you would make up in fiction. This is the God who is. This is the God who exists. Spurgeon writes it like this. Eastern monarchs, you can think of the Esther class that some of you have been listening to. Eastern monarchs affected great seclusion and were prone to surround themselves with impassable barriers of state. It was very difficult even for their most loyal subjects to approach them. You remember the case of Esther, who though the monarch was her own husband, yet went with her life in her hand when she ventured to present herself before King Ahasuerus. 
For there was a command that none should come into the king's presence unless they were called at peril of their lives. And Persian says it like this. It is not so with the king of kings. His court is far more splendid. His person is far more worthy of worship. But you may draw near to him at all times without hindrance. He has set no men at arms around his palace. Around his palace gate, the door of his house of mercy is set wide open. Though he is greater than the greatest and higher than the highest, he has been pleased to put out of the way everything which might keep the sinner from entering into his halls of gracious entertainment. From his lips we hear no threatening against intrusion, but hundreds of invitations to the nearest and dearest intimacy. Jesus is to be approached, not now and then, but at all times, and not by some favored few, but by all in whose hearts his Holy Spirit has kindled the desire to enter into his secret presence. Let me read it again, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. That word is otherwise translated in the Greek New Testament, kind. My yoke is kind, and my burden is light. The yoke was a discipleship term. Right, you know, a yoke on an oxen, right? You put the wooden thing over the oxen's neck. It might be two oxen. They have the yoke over their necks, and they would pull farming equipment, like a plow behind the yoke. So yokes represented hard work and labor. And whenever you had a disciple following a rabbi, they would talk about the yoke of discipleship, which means you have a list of things you got to do, and the, they put it on your neck, and it's going to be a hard work to follow this rabbi and to follow the teaching. And Jesus says, I am going to teach you. I'm going to be your savior. I'm going to speak truth to you, and you will be my disciple. I'm offering you my yoke. And you're thinking, this is going to be brutal. This is God in the flesh giving us this yoke. And he says, when I put this yoke on you, it, it does have a burden that comes with it. It's the burden that is light and the yoke that is easy and kind. It's the yoke that only can provide rest. Let me just give you a, a, a verse here that I think parallels. You can jot it down, 1 John 5, 3 and 4. 1 John 5, 3 and 4. Listen to this. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not what? Burdensome. How could it be that obeying the God of the universe could be not burdensome? He tells us, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to give you the grace to believe and to trust me, and as I increase your faith, your faith in me, your trust in me, and your love for me in response to my love for you will begin to grow. And as you trust me more, and as your love for me grows, obeying and serving the Lord Jesus will become more of a delight and less of a mere duty. It will become more joy and less drudgery. It will become more what you were made to be and do and less the kind of legalistic burden-bearing that the Pharisees offered to their followers. Think of Genesis 29, verse, 30, verse 20. Remember Jacob works for Rachel to marry her? Remember? Listen to this verse. 
So Jacob served, remember how many years? Seven years. That's, that's a long time. He served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him to be but a few days because of the love he had for her. Do you see how the burden gets lifted when love and faith come in to fill the void? When there is a love for the Lord for what He's done, there's a trust in the Lord for what He's done, suddenly His commandments aren't burdensome. It's like when you're falling in love with someone, you just want to spend time with them. And if there was no love for that person, it would look like a bunch of burdens to be around them and talking to them and spending time with them. It looks so burdensome. But from within, the burden is gone because it's been lifted because the Lord has given us the grace and the love and the peace and the joy and the rest that only He can provide for us. Two closing thoughts. Number one, Sinclair Ferguson preached a, a tremendous sermon on this. It's on YouTube, on this text, and he said this. He said, when you look at the Gospels, especially you might pick Matthew and Mark and Luke in particular, when you look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Sinclair Ferguson said, what marks Jesus is not rest, but restlessness. As he goes to face the wrath of the Father for our sin, he, in Mark's gospel, he falls on the ground. He has such agony, he's drawing near to dying. In Luke's gospel, he begins to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. An angel appears before him, strengthening him. He is in agony. Why did Jesus go through the restlessness and the agony of the judgment of God for us? So that we could experience the rest and the peace and the joy that he alone could purchase on our behalf. Now, I will close now with this, with this quote. There's a wonderful chapter in this book where he quotes a lot from John Bunyan, his book, Come and Welcome to Sinners in Jesus Christ. And he's dealing with objections that we raise to say, I don't think Jesus really could welcome me like that. I just, if he knew all that I've done, all that I've thought, all that I've said, I don't think he would give me the kind of warm welcome that so many Christians experience. He wants to encourage you in that. And so please listen to these words Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Then he says this, Imagine a conversation here between the sinner and Christ. No wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. Well, you know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. With mouth-stopping defiance, 
we conclude this list of objections raised to coming to Jesus. The, the promise was provided to answer all objections, and as John Bunyan said, it does answer them. Case closed. We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. I'm almost done here. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. Nothing but coming to Him is required, first at conversion and a thousand times thereafter, until we are with Him upon death. Would you come to this Christ? Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we are um, amazed by these words. I want to read them one more time. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, I have no doubt that within the sound of my voice, perhaps in sitting in this room right now, there are, I'm sure there are some in this room who have never tasted the reality of rest in Christ. It doesn't go beyond a Christian platitude. It doesn't have any real resonance in real life. So God, I pray that right now, even, even as I'm speaking, as I'm praying, as we sing in just a moment, even in these coming moments, God, that you would open hearts, that you would choose to reveal yourself to little children. I pray, God, that you would help us to cast away pride and self-sufficiency and other false gods and saviors that we lean and rest on, that we would fling them away and that we would become very childlike in this moment, that we'd be humbled by our sin. And that we would come to you as a child. No merit. No resume of righteousness. No good work that could earn anything from you. That we would say, Lord, I have failed. Left to myself, I am going to be cursed and cut off. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I cannot claim anything except what Christ has done. And in the name of Christ, I pray that you would apply his finished work to me, that you would give me rest for my tired and troubled heart, and that you would show me how to take up your yoke, to wear it as a disciple of Christ, and that we would find that your yoke is kind and that your burden is light. Help us, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.